0: I'm your host, Will Krebs, and this is the Under Pressure Outdoors Podcast. Long before the invention of the automobile, rifled barrels, shoot, even gunpowder itself, Mankind had joined forces with a four-legged friend in a mutually beneficial relationship to pursue game. Now, fast forward a few hundred years and put yourself in the heart of the southeastern United States in the fall, and you just might hear the distant baying of a hunting dog hot on the track of a white-tailed deer. To some, this may seem unordinary, but to many people in the South, it's a tradition, a hunting heritage that goes so much deeper than a successful harvest of an animal. To truly explain what I mean, we're joined this week by Billy Morton to talk about his book, as well as the heritage, history, and tradition running deer dogs. Billy, tell us a little bit about yourself.
1: Um so I uh I grew up in Samson, Florida, I was just outside of uh, New Smyrna Beach, um, 43. Um been hunting my whole life, dog hunting my whole life. Um grew up fishing, hunting. Uh me and my brother used to race cars. Um just anything anything we could get our hands on to do that um that involved adrenaline we did it. Um Worked for Publix for 22 years. Retired from there, and uh, I mow lawns now, which is kind of total opposite of, uh, of what I've done, but it's allowed me to uh, spend more time with my kids, my family. Uh, come hunting season, I'm off every other week. I'm off every weekend. So, I mean, it's just played right into what we love to do.
0: Yeah. You can't beat that. I mean, yeah. we're all, we're all looking for that, that, uh, career to let you off as much as can during hunting season. Right. Oh, sure. <laughs>
1: now, now in the summertime, I second, yeah. yeah. what am I doing?
0: <laughs> we're all living for the fall though.
1: Absolutely. That's all. I just count on the weeks. Yeah. yeah.
0: So what inspired you to write a, write a book?
1: Well, like I said, I, uh, I love, I love dog hunting. Um, I, I like to write songs and poems. Um, never put them out there really. I, I post them every now and then, but I've never really gave them to anybody. I just, I love to express what I love to do on paper. Um, and finally one day, just after listening to all these old timers around the campfire, thinking about how they need to have their stories put out there and I was like, you know, I'm, I'm just gonna do it. I'm gonna put all of my stories that, you know, of my short time doing it, and some of theirs out there and just, let people enjoy what we really love to
0: do sounds like a book you could you could really get into reading because you i for one really love to just sit around the fire and listen to those stories and tell stories and i've always found myself if it's hunting a new piece of public ground or whatever you got to even if i have something better to do in the middle of the day i'm going to go back to the check station you're going to go sit there and listen to the old timers and the people that even even the people that haven't killed deer, the people that did you hear the stories of the success of the day you hear the the stories of success of days past, how it used to be, you know, and it's it's always a good time listening to that type of stuff.
1: Oh yeah, I remember growing up and uh, where we first started hunting. Um, you know, they had the man check station and they had the chalkboard out there, and every day we'd ride in, and I'd look at that number and I'd tell my dad, I said, well, I'm gonna put I'm gonna put one on the board, and it it, it took a while, but I, that was something I can't wait to bring my deer back here and let everybody you know drive by and be like, yeah yeah, look what I got. Yeah. A lot of misses in uh, <laughs> between that, but we, we finally made it happen.
0: I learned some of the best tips I've ever learned hunting public land by going there, and you just go up to the check station, don't know nobody. I'll go up and I'll sit down at the picnic table and I'll wait. And eventually an old timer will wander over and sit down next to you and you strike up a conversation. Next thing you know, they're telling you exactly where to go sit to kill the big deer. They ain't got nobody to talk to. They I mean if they don't know anybody either, they're gonna come sit down, you just drag up a conversation and they're handing out the hot tips.
1: Oh, sure. Yeah, and if if you do right by them, then you know they'll keep feeding you information.
0: Yeah. But that's that's just just listen. That's all people want you to do anymore, really, is just listen.
1: Oh, some of my best times. I mean, when we're out there sitting around, even where we hunt today, just sitting around the fire and uh we're usually passing around blackberry brandy or some kind of shine or something. I I could <laughs> sit there all night listening to them guys, and yeah, you could just you could picture in your mind how it went down, and it's just um, it's amazing how they did it growing up. I mean, we've we've got it good. Yeah,
2: once the, I- once the mason jars come out though, that's when you know they go from eight points to ten points to oh yeah absolutely absolutely
1: uh we get a we jump a buck out there and a lot of times if i I see it i get a if you ever watch duke's hazard roscoe pico that's what i sound like on the sea i can't even i just trip it out of my tongue and it's it's a rack buck it's a rack buck usually it's a crooked four point i don't know i just my eyes roll back and (laughs) and i just lose all focus the
0: excitement of it you know to I don't know, we uh, we kind of touched on it in the intro there, but what we're really talking about is, is a tradition here that really only anymore takes place in the deep southeastern United States, Florida, Georgia, some in Alabama, Mississippi, Louisiana, and that's running white-tailed deer with dogs. And it used to be a much more widespread thing, but it's kind of died off over the years. Um but the people that are still doing it really, it's so deeply rooted in tradition. Yeah,
1: it, And it is this Florida. You can pretty much run anywhere. If you're allowed to run dogs on that certain property, a lot of States are are County specific Alabama, you can't run all Alabama, Louisiana, Georgia. There, there's a lot, most of those States, it's only a certain portion that you can run them in. And I think, what a lot has to do with the the loss of numbers of people doing it. It's a it's a hard sport to get into without knowing anybody. I was lucky enough to grow up around it, but it's not one of those things where you can just grab a gun, go jump in a tree, and learn on your. There's a lot to yeah. it. It's a, it's a lot of work, and it's it, it's all year. Right. It's, it, it's all year. I mean, we are constantly taking care of dogs. Can't go on vacation because I got ten-headed dog I got to feed. Can't ask my neighbor to come over and feed him. You know, it's 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 a it's a whole package.
0: That's definitely um, I, I think a a pretty common misconception. You these people think when they look at people running deer with dogs is that oh well, what do they do with the dogs the rest of the year? I'm like man, I have seen people dump an ungodly amount of money into dogs to keep. I mean the science behind how they feed these dogs, how they train these dogs, run these dogs, it's those people that are running deer dogs nine times out of ten are taking way better care of the dog than you are taking care of uh, Fido, the, the yeah. little purse-carrying <laughs> yeah. dog that's oh, 40 yeah. pounds overweight.
1: <laughs> Definitely. We're, we're constantly, whether it's deworming them, trimming their toenails, washing them, I mean, I just sometimes I just get out there and I stand out there and look at them. And every morning I look, I look at every one of them and I could tell you if he's feeling good, if he ain't feeling good. You know, he needs this, he needs that. You know, it's, it doesn't, it never ends, never ends.
0: So what was one of your, uh, the biggest influence? What's been your biggest influence since starting writing your book?
1: Um, I, I really, like I said, the old timers, Um and I I want something for my kids to have so they can kinda you know see it through other people's eyes. Um it's a lot different now since since I started, but um I really want people to see why we love it so much. It's not it's not always about the kill. Um it's just a whole experience. It's a lifestyle. But it's something that, you know. I've taken people that have never dog hunted before. I've met strangers off of some of the hunting website or Facebook page, and my wife's like, "Oh, you, you don't even know this person. You're gonna take him?" I said, "Listen," and I took this guy a couple of years ago off, actually off uh, the Florida Hunters Network. I didn't know this guy. I never met, but I investigated a little bit. But to take him out there, he's never dog hunted, and he loved it. I mean, he was just i never knew this is how it was and i want people to see what it's like
0: it's a it's a dying heritage and and i really think it has to do a lot with uh misconception Mm -hmm. and i i I hate to see it go that way
2: so a lot of family involved in it too i i mean i've never i got a few buddies at dog hunt and i'll go with them every now and then but it's always you know the whole family is always there
1: sure yeah my um my whole family hunts my daughter she's just now getting old enough where she'll probably start shooting but she we're, we'll be able to run a dog i can hear her at the camp ride around on her four-wheeler and she'll be talking on the cv to us and we kill something she's ready she's all smiles you know waiting for us to come back so everybody's involved in it
0: you know tell you talk about family that we had a lease and uh southeast georgia and you talk you talk about the counties earlier southeast georgia even though you can run dogs in that county you either have to own if you own the land it has to be more than 600 acres to run dogs on mm-hmm. and if you lease it, it has to be over a thousand acres in order for you to legally be able to run dogs on it but we had a piece that we leased it wasn't big enough for running dogs but there were two dog clubs on either side of us um, and and one of them we actually stayed in their camp Mm-hmm. Uh, because they had power and water and we worked out an agreement with them or we could come in there and we paid them to put a camper in there so we could have power and run water and all that good stuff. And those guys were just – they were excellent. Mm-hmm. Coming out of uh, Jacksonville, coming up there to run dogs and, and right around ludo Georgia, and the amount of camaraderie and family and – Everybody goes out to run dogs, somebody's back at camp still making breakfast for all 25 of them to come mm-hmm. back in 2 hours later, grab breakfast, run back out, somebody's cooking a big old lunch, big old dinner, and I I tell you I never went hungry. Oh no, no, yeah. you when I was you, there. No, if you do
1: that's your own fault.
0: <laughs> they had a big old skillet making Philly cheesesteaks for dinner and all kinds of other stuff. It was it was always a really good time. I mean there was a lot of uh poking fun of us because you know we didn't we never ran dogs with them um but it, it would we had a good agreement where we understood i understood very well that the dogs don't know property lines and if they're going to run across our property not a big deal i didn't care uh, but they were always we had uh handheld radios and we would listen to them talking on the radio mm-hmm. and when the dogs would turn towards our property they come on the radio hey they're coming your way they're going to cross the clear cut and every time i went to the tree stand i carried a shotgun and a rifle during during rifle season cuz if i'll be damned if i was going to miss Absolutely. an opportunity right <laughs> you know there's a, it's a rack buck you better shoot it when it crosses the crosses crosses the clear cut uh of course the deer would always hit that wall where the clear cut was as our property needed to go left or right they never came across it unless we weren't in the tree stand then they would run across there just fine they just knew Oh yeah, I swear yeah, really
1: they do, they do. We uh we hunt up there in Georgia too. We got a lease up in Folkestone, which is just outside of Jacksonville that we run dogs on. But it's we're totally surrounded by still hunt clubs, so we have to have a Garmin. There, you know. Yeah, yeah. So, but it's uh, it's a good time.
0: Those those guys, what I mean, that's what would you say is the biggest change that's been since you started running dogs versus now
1: well it's a lot tougher now because of the, um, the amount of traffic on the roads yeah the the property is a lot more cut up than it used to be and um like you said there's some people that just don't like it and then you put one bad taste in their mouth and you'll they'll never get rid of it and um so the technology i i like it because it does save us we Knock on wood, we've had no complaints up there or down here since we got it. Like, we don't have dogs get off our property unless it's a, a breakdown in a GPS service. I mean, they just don't – we can stop them right on the line, and that's it. Um, but that's probably the biggest change. It's just because everything is chopped up. You can't just let them go.
0: Right. Let's say, I, those guys, it was – before we had that agreement with them that, you know, hey, we don't care if your dogs cross – as long as you're not dumping dogs on our property, we all understood that. Of course, when we weren't there, they would call. I think one year we didn't hunt, like the last two weeks of season, we just had some stuff happen. And they're like, hey, do you care if we go dump dogs? It's like, Shh, go for it. We're not there. Here's the code to the gate. In fact, they had their own lock on our gate so that if we weren't there, they could get in and get their dogs. Gotcha. Um, but they would go. They would always call ahead and stuff like that. And let us, I, I didn't care. It, it wasn't going to make a bit of difference whether we saw a deer or not. <laughs> we never, hardly ever did.
1: Well, I, and you're probably the same way. In the, in the part of Georgia where we're at now, we, we, uh, we have some still hunters in our club, so we still hunt until Thanksgiving, and then we run dogs. But those deer don't move unless, no. unless there's tail or dogs behind them. They don't move. I mean, no, the, the, those,
0: they, now those guys, I don't hunt there anymore, but they had, I want to say just shy of 10,000 acres that they ran on and they had some still hunters. Uh, they probably had about mm, eight or nine of them out of 20 or so that were on that lease mm-hmm. and they would hunt, you know, the guy, when they would go, the hunt master would say, Oh, we're going to go run this section of the property today. And the still hunters would go hunt on the other side. Um uh, but the biggest deer I ever saw killed off their lease wasn't killed by a still hunter. That It was killed out in front of dogs. Mm-hmm. And it was hard to get those deer... Those deer would move where we were, but they would only move in the places where you couldn't get to. Oh, yeah. Yeah, they know. Like they were thick back in the deep, knee-deep swamp. and You could get there, but it wasn't no fun getting in there. Yeah. You know?
1: And then if you got in there, they, they would be back out on the road. Right, <laughs> Yeah. <laughs>
0: So, but they, I mean, it, as far as I was concerned, they did a good job of keeping deer up and moving.
1: Yeah, they, I mean, the, the, that's another misconception is people think, oh, you run dogs. You know, you, you'd be surprised. Now, the club that I hunt down here in, in Florida, we run dogs till lunch, and then they still hunt at night. It's been that way ever since. They've had it probably 70 years. So they've always, it's a small, we only have 1,500 acres. So you could really be done running it. Pretty quick, but I always see deer at night moving around. I mean, we'll see a ton of deer, and and probably sixty percent of the deer killed down there are killed out of a stand after we've already run dogs through that okay. block. It, I mean, it, you would be surprised. That, I mean, we last year, uh me and my father-in-law, we killed this eight-point in a swamp. I'm probably hundred yards from our camp. You can see the trailers. See the was eight side-by-sides in his pond, yipping and yelling, talk about this deer. We shot at him eight times, got done cleaning him. That was on a Sunday. We were leaving. Two hours later, driving out, here comes a deer out of the same path. We had just all drove through, hooping and hollering like nothing ever went on.
0: It's, it's, nothing seems to amaze me anymore when it comes to the resiliency of deer.
1: Yeah, they, they adapt, and they won't move unless they need to uh quick story so sometimes we walk we have a a block that is um bordered by a bike trail now which we can't get on that bike path anymore so we can't get on that border of our property so a lot of times we'll, we call it bird dog and we'll walk in there take dogs in there and dump them in a swamp so i have this dog uh, chaos which he's not real cold nose but he's a hunter and he does a lot of winding. and we're walking through the block and I see him he's like you know he will run a coon every now and then if it's hot so you gotta watch (laughs) you but uh he's jumping around and whining and I'm like there's nothing here like I don't see nothing here so I walk on probably about 50 yards he comes up to me like lassie he's like pushing me on the legs like so he goes back well there's a pile probably about as big as this table three trees are laid on top of each other and there's briars he runs up the, the tree, and I'm like, he's a damn coon. It's a coon. It's got to be a coon. And this big old buck busted out of that pile. He lay there the whole time. We had walked around it. That dog had been there, and he, he would not have moved had that dog not got up on top of that pile, just laid right in the middle of it.
0: That's crazy. It was said, Daddy used to always tell us they don't get big being dumb. No, they do nope. not. No, they don't. And that's one of those things. That the deer are going to learn, you know, the dogs and all that. That's, I mean, man.
1: Some of your biggest deer are right behind the camp.
0: Oh yeah, yeah. I mean they lay they, they know. Yeah, well we had one. We hunted in uh, around Americus area, and we called it the Swamp Ape. Never oh, saw it. Jeez, yeah, that thing was. But every time you would get out of the tree stand and walk around the top of the bottom, coming back to camp, mm-hmm. that deer would blow from the bottom of the down in the bottom, and it sounded like a woman screaming. I was terrified of that deer. Yeah. Absolutely like, terrified of that deer. <laughs> that's a legendary deer. Right? Because it wouldn't. It would. You know, normally a deer would blow and then run away. That one would blow and follow you. It would follow you around the bottom the whole time you walked around there, going the same direction you were. Mm-mm-mm. Ooh, I'm getting chills just thinking about it. Well, so that was the time when I would run back from the tree stand.
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs> so yeah uh relay hunting club what is uh what is relay hunting club and how did it come to be
1: so uh back when i first started hunting relay was a management area but it was just a basic management area you got your stamp you hunt it it was open to the public um that's where i got my first start running dogs um back then i don't know how many acres it is now um, but it was twenty five thousand acres i believe um some of the best deer in this part of Florida. I mean, it's just big swamp bucks. I mean, it was known to hold some good deer. But um we my dad, he always hunted out there. He hunted out there as a kid. I used to skip school, go hunting out there and um he'd drag us out there every Friday. We'd stop by the store, get our dinner, go out there to camp. Um we usually got there on Friday afternoon after school. So uh, Friday night, we'd get load of puppies up, go out to the to the woods, shine. We always had this doe that was at the same spot every night. We'd go run her for about two hours, with the puppies come back, get ready to go hunting in the morning. Um, but it was just kind of one of those places where I learned um, all the all the people that I hunted with, all their stories. I mean, there were some characters out there. I mean, there was anywhere from your businessman to your outlaw I mean you had everybody out there but everybody looked out for each other it was just like one big family out there I mean you had your different groups of you know hunters but it was just it was just like home it was uh, definitely I'll, I'll always remember that place and uh, it's a private club now um, it went to a a um, quote or a permit system I guess where you would apply and pay $400 whatever it was to hunt out there but it's a private club now
0: yeah and that mm. just, that's kind of what happened to it it went back to uh, from my reading I understand that uh, Rainier Timber Company and uh, Plum Creek I believe owned the majority of the land out there and they went back to what was more profitable for them
1: yeah it was when now when I hunted back there uh, Georgia Pacific yeah. and then I guess they were bought out or however with um, but when they went to the permit system, I guess they couldn't fill it up. They didn't have enough people, and I guess it was just too much of a hassle. So finally, they're just like, you know, let's make it a lease. We'll guarantee to get money out of it.
0: Yeah, I have my qualms no. against Ray and, Ear and uh, their management <laughs> practices of property. Yeah, but. we're yeah we <laughs> I,
1: I've you know I've heard some stories out there. We we lease from Warehouseer up there in Georgia, and they've been good to us. So um, I can't say anything really bad about them.
0: Well, I can say this from leasing from Rainier and then going and looking at warehouser land, there's a significant difference in the two and and what, where, how the way warehouser manages and the way Rainier, um, flattens, I mean, manages everything they own. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) so, uh, after, after they Rainier decided to end the program with the state of Florida, where'd you guys go after that?
1: So um, we went to Farmton for a little bit, which is down off of Maytown, uh, towards Oak Hill area, Osteen. And then we got in um, Tomoka Hunting Club, which is now part of Tiger Bay, but it was a dog club back then. We had about 20,000 acres. So we hunted there, hunted Farmton, and then um, a couple other little private places. And, and back then you could just, you had a big chunk of land nobody said anything he just went and hunted it right and uh now we're in uh we hunt in Georgia and then we're I'm in a lease with my um in-laws and their family down in Brevard County which they've had for 70 plus years so we spent a lot of time down there
0: so how much public land are you still running today
1: a little bit um Ocala I'll go out you know during training season um I spent a lot of my time at either of these leases. So I kind of, if I want to have a normal life, I got (laughs) to, I got to split my time between hunting. So um, I don't get too much on the public land much anymore, but um, it's an important part, no matter what. Um, I think it's good for people to get their foot in the door. It's easier on public land and then see which way they want to go. Um, it, it's one of those things, you know, with a lease, you are pretty much in the hands of the leaseholder. So if he says, or she says, this is it, you know, we're done or we just don't want you on the property no more.
0: Yeah. You're gone. That's that's it. it. Yeah.
1: That's it. So it's, it's very important.
0: Been there. Yep. (laughs) <laughs> multiple times absolutely. where you you just uh you're like all right well it's time to renew the lease and then they were you know they say well uh yeah it was but we sold it <laughs> like yep. oh well can we lease from that guy no yeah, no that's that, it no pack up all it. your stuff and yeah. get out of here <laughs> but and it happens and, and we we currently do a lot of our still hunting on a lease in georgia and I, i've but florida has a lot of public land Georgia has some great public lands to hunt on too but Florida has a lot of good uh, quota systems if you're a a still hunter and you can manage to squeeze in there on those quota hunts I've managed to get lucky enough to draw rock springs for muzzler this year and I'm stoked about it
1: yeah there's a lot of them that don't get a lot of pressure and not a lot of people go on there so if you get something good like that
2: they, they do a really good job of
0: keeping a small amount of hunters in a lot of those areas, a lot of people tend to get upset by the fact that they can't draw this area and can't draw that other area. But I mean, it's it's for a good reason half the time yeah. it's because there isn't there isn't a lot of pressure like you're talking about. Like I said, I'm I'm stoked about going to be able to hunt Rock Springs for muzzleloader, and then hey, me too. I drew uh, Lake George for general gun, but we're going to be in Kentucky. Managed to squeeze in a, a trip to Kentucky this year, so we're going to go up there. Public hunt to public land MT. in Kentucky. Oh, nice. Do got, a little ones up there ones up there i spent five year i lived up there for five years hunting on public and private land and i am excited to go back and hunt some of the old stomping grounds where i killed some big bucks up there and take these guys from the under pressure outdoors crew up there to really show them how it's done where we're hunting up there you can kill one buck a season and three does a day
1: now uh how how is the uh the public land situation up there i mean is it
0: uh where we're hunting we're going to go hunt on uh, the military base fort campbell mm-hmm. um, and if you wanted to hunt fort campbell just a public service announcement you can actually go on their website uh the fort campbell you just type in fort campbell mwr hunting in google and it'll pop up It would have all the regulations you need you go on there and you will buy a post permit to hunt on the the base which is i think i I think it was 35 bucks for the year. Mm-hmm. And then you can buy either a Tennessee or a Kentucky, uh, non-resident license to hunt on the base. And then um, you'll create an iSportsman account, which will allow you to go on and sign into your specific training area. They'll give you a list days in advance of the training areas that are open. Mm-hmm. Then you can sign on there and use a computer to sign into one of those training areas. And then when deer season opens on the base up there, which is usually the second or third Saturday in September, excuse me, um, it, op- it It's open. You hunt with a shotgun, muzzleloader, rifle, or a bow. Nice. It just depends on what train area you're signed into. You have to be signed into a rifle area to hunt with a rifle, shotgun or muzzleloader area to hunt with a shotgun or muzzleloader, and then a bow. Obviously, you can hunt in all of those with a bow. You mm-hmm. can only hunt the rifle with the rifle areas. You can hunt in the shotgun or muzzleloader within a rifle or a shotgun or muzzleloader area, so on and so forth. But they do a really good job of trophy managing there their deer and not that they ever really needed to uh because i some of the deer i've seen up there freaks of nature just absolute monsters up there i mean i i I shot a 13 point up there in 2015 15 yeah late 2015 say again that thing was a stud too not like the one that the that got hit by a car, oh jeez, they just google Fort Campbell deer hit by a car, and look at that that Monster. the woman survived, but she spent three days in the i c u after hitting that deer absolute giant of a buck Mm-mm-mm. and uh I spent a lot of time hunting up there on the base and hunting some private property off the base in Tennessee, and even there we had monsters. We had a huge buck on trail camera on that piece in Tennessee, and we hunted him hard, and he was killed on public land that was buying that private property. Wow. So it's all, all these monsters that are coming off of public land. There's a lot of good private land up there, but don't for a second think that you can't put in for permits to draw land between the lakes in, in uh, Tennessee or Kentucky and still go out there and kill giants.
1: Oh, yeah, them deer, they'll travel. Yeah. You know, if, the, if it's that the genes are there, and they, they'll move.
0: But just that entire the, that entire state of Kentucky is is full of monsters, and there's a decent amount of public land on both uh, Kentucky and Tennessee, and there's still plenty of big deer in Tennessee. Um, Tennessee has uh, more liberal buck rules; you can kill two bucks in Tennessee versus Kentucky, you can only kill one. Um, and I, I know in where we were at in Tennessee, we hunted over there, we could kill two bucks a year, and I think two does a day. And we didn't have a limit on the season. But if you go further into eastern Tennessee over towards the mountains and stuff like that, there's I think you're limited on does. Sure. How many does you can kill there. And that's all based on you know herd populations and, and things like that. But I had never sat in my life anywhere else and seen. I sat there in the area where I killed that 13 point and I saw 25, 26 deer in a sit in the morning. Wow. Never seen that before. No, that, I mean that'll
1: yeah. keep you. That'll keep you glued.
0: I remember one morning I quit counting turkeys at a, at a uh, hundred and ten. Jeez. I was like, All right, I'm done. I'm going to look at something else now <laughs> because they just kept coming across the road.
1: Mm-mm-mm.
0: And I still couldn't kill a turkey up there. I'm terrible. I am a terrible turkey hunter. But that's that's a whole another whole another podcast. I'm a great turkey hunter, terrible turkey killer. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so when were you first introduced to dog hunting?
1: Oh, I, as far back as I can remember, I was young. Um, probably, I can start remembering probably after I was five or six, you know, some of it. But we've been bouncing around in the back of a truck ever since we were in diapers, pretty much. I mean, we, we when people say they grew up at camp, we grew up at camp. I mean, we spent any free time in the back of a truck. And usually when we were little... We'd ride with my dad sometimes, but we usually rode with the other guys that had all the snacks and the, and the candy yeah. and, <laughs> the, and the Mountain Dew because they'd get us all sugared up and then send us back to camp. And here you go. But, yeah, it, I mean, it was, we were young. young. I mean, it's a lot different, too. Now, I remember me and my brother, I was probably 10, maybe 11. He's a couple years younger than me, riding around on four-wheelers out of a relay and, with guns by ourselves <laughs> yeah. we'd wander away and and uh game one at a time which i think was tower, and uh he'd round us up you can't be out here by yourself without your dad so he because we always had a 20 gauge single shot and we couldn't you know pull the hammer it was always open my dad said you'd never close that thing and pull the hammer back to you ready to shoot so by then the deer is already across the road we never shot but uh, he'd round us up you can't be here he'd take us back to the truck all right all right Thirty minutes later, rides around. Right back
2: out there. <laughs> yeah. Nowadays, I don't think that'd be able to happen. No, <laughs> no, I know our we uh, our dad dog hunted a little bit when we were kids because he. I mean, shortly after we were born, he kind of transferred over. to Still hunting, but I remember even dog hunting as a kid. It was we were just his dog catchers. Oh yeah, go get that dog! <laughs> Here comes the dog. Go get out of there.
1: Oh, yeah. We had, when, where we used to live, we used to get home from school, and we had, my dad, we always had walkers, but we had a couple of beagles just for me and my brother, and we'd jump the fence 10 years old, 12 years old, guns, dog, throw whatever, the fence. And most of the time we were just dog hunting because the dog would be lost, and we'd be looking yeah, for it. We'd yeah. come home without a <laughs> dog, but, I mean, that was just an everyday thing.
0: I have to say that dog hunting is aptly named because you do spend a lot of time just, uh, I would say equal, if not more amount of time hunting the dogs.
1: Oh yeah. yeah. <laughs> you do hunting the deer. It's like you yeah. said
0: though, those garments make it real nice. Cause you're
2: like, all right, cool. He's right up here around this bend.
1: Well, it's yeah, because I can remember back in the day, especially when we ran Ocala before my, my dad got the telemetry collars, you know, when they first started coming out. Um, but many times we'd have to stick a dog box in the woods in one of our shirts and hopefully a dog would come smell it and be laying there you know three days four days later but it would, you spend a lot of time looking for dogs
2: remember they used to have those pens out that was back when people still trusted other people but catch other people's dogs and throw them in the pens in the forest
1: oh yeah now that they took those away because that turned into a um drop a dog box dump for site. Unwanted
0: yeah. Dogs. yeah
1: but yeah you you didn't have to worry about anything back then
0: that, that was back when there were people standing on, you're standing on the, uh, on top of the dog box with the, with the radio antenna, listening for the louder beeps and kind of pinpoint the direction it came from and then driving off in that direction or over the next road over and pinpointing it again and trying yeah. to figure out what the, with the old radio collars.
1: Oh yeah. And that, and that those things are still around. Um, a lot of people actually use those. I'm thinking about getting some, I have some of my dad's old ones, but the good thing about those is you get no interference. See with these GPS collars, if you're hunting with somebody that has the same or similar number, you can't track your dog. It'll just interfere. So those telemetry collars never stop, and they'll they'll go three, four days, five days on a on a battery. <laughs> yeah. So they're they're a they're kind of one of those backup things. Right. Um, but you can't stop them with that thing. Like I said, with the, that GPS, I can call over to. Rick, say, hey, Rick, the dog's out on the road. Pick him up. I'm headed this way. Right. You know, back then it was just like, oh, you see a dog, get it. Yeah, yeah. Right. So it's changed a lot.
0: Yeah, that black and tan one, that's mine. Grab it when you get over yep. there. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and that was, I, I remember running dogs. I mean, I, even when I was in high school, I had a lot of friends that ran dogs. So I would get up there with my buddies and go run in the Ocala National Forest with, the, with their dads and stuff like that just because, uh, well, if I wasn't going to Georgia this weekend, I'm going hunting. You know, so I get out there and run. And that was the whole, even back then, the, the GPS collars were just starting to get, coming around. But they were so expensive that a lot of people just didn't want to buy them. And so that was, you catch, dogs come out, catch a bunch of dogs you know, on the radio. I got this dog, this dog, this dog, this dog, and this dog. Whose dogs are they? Oh, yeah. You know, yeah. And you, you want to try to figure out, you can get the people their dogs back.
1: Oh, yeah. You have more than you can fit in a box, too. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs>
0: Yeah, I don't know. I've ever seen more you can fit in there. You can always cram one more. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
1: yeah, you're good unless you get one of those fighters, and then it's like pull them all back out and get that one out of there. Yeah.
0: <laughs> the more you cram in there, the less likely they are to get too ornery. Yeah, exactly. So, what has uh, what's inspired you to continue the tradition of uh, hunting with dogs for the, for the next generation?
1: My kids, I mean, they love it. There's times I'm like, God, you know, I just, it's a lot of money. Uh, and it, it's uh, like I said, it's a lot harder to do now, but they love it. Um, my daughter, she is not a still hunter by any means. She can't sit still. She's, I, I try to take her still hunting, but if you've ever tried to bathe and give a bobcat a pedicure, that's, <laughs> that's exactly what it's like in a blinds. Like, oh, just grab her a Mountain Dew and she's, but, um, she loves dog hunting. And, um, like I said, most times she's at the camp waiting for us. And um, my son, he actually killed his first buck running dogs last year. And uh, so I like to video when they're running. I don't do a lot of sight video, but I'll get them, bar- you know, sound and stuff. And I just happened to be recording. There was only four of us, it was the day after Christmas. And if you try to dog hunt with four people, it is very tough. Um, especially in the blocks that we have, not a lot of straight roads, a lot of curved roads, hard to see, a lot of broom grass. But anyways, we, we put on this doe, um, and dogs, you know, they course, they jump it right away. We ran it for two hours, and I kept telling us, I said, just keep in the corner, crowd the corner. I said, we'll just all stay together. We'll get this deer out. And um, sure enough, he's with uh, Charlie and uh because charlie has all the snacks (laughs) and i'm recording talking and i hear pow
3: pow
1: and i'm like i didn't know it was him and uh, all of a sudden he got on the radio he got him ended up being a five point had got in with that doe and the doe had come out first and he seen a deer behind it, so he didn't shoot and the five point actually run to him turned down the road he shot him in the back of the head and that was it. And all the dogs piled on top of it. And that, you still, to this day, can't wipe the smile off his face. And, no, I bet. That's why, <laughs> yeah. that's why we do it I right bet. there.
0: So what do you think is, is the biggest threat to, to hunters in general, not just dog hunters today in, in the tradition we carry on? Well, population
1: growth is probably number one, but it's probably one of the number one things we can't do anything about personally without the help of you know a big group to try to fight it off um people that don't like hunting a lot of it's political i believe now and a lot of things that get passed are for votes you know in in favor of votes and um but i think the biggest thing that we can control is ourselves and how we conduct ourselves and how we treat hunters of all aspects um because when it comes down to it, I'm a like I said, I'm a majorly a dog hunter, I'll, but I support any kind of hunting, and that's the way it should be. you know if if you're fighting in a in a war and the people on the same side shouldn't have to worry turn around behind them and worry about who's you know stabbing them back. Um, it's definitely working together, being respectful to each other, and another thing is misuse. And I'll probably get people be like, eh, that's not right. It's not misuse of social media.
3: Yes. By absolutely. far.
1: If people would just stop and think about what they post on there in videos and pictures, we'd be a lot better off. Because once you post it and somebody grabs that, you can't you can't get it back. You know, and it's it could be used for a lot more positive things. I mean, the people that don't like hunting are always not gonna like hunting. It's the people on the fence that you have to persuade to n- not hunt, but to be okay with what you do.
0: Right. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree with you more. That in that aspect, that hunters are their own worst enemy. Mm-hmm. Uh, too too many times we get we get up in arms with each other about the way we hunt, whether it be bow hunters against rifle hunters, or steel hunters against dog hunters, or whatever you want to want to call it, it there's no reason for us to be fighting amongst ourselves when there's enough uh enough to deal with outside of the hunting community in general and uh i, I don't think and that's been one of our biggest missions here at Under Pressure outdoors is to put on a better face for the hunter and you know we, we did a we we did our best we could with that here over the the spring time and <clears throat> we made a we made a lot of connections with people that otherwise wouldn't have um, even come out to a quote-unquote hunting event by organizing uh, events through the Florida chapter of Backridge Hunters and Anglers um, with the Gobblers and Garbage Cleanup Initiative and picking up trash in the Ocala National Forest. And we hauled out several tons of garbage out of the Ocala National Forest.
1: Oh, there's a bunch out there. And oh, it was
0: awful. It was terrible and we met with a lot of people who we took the uh the original garbage and garbage event and we shared it all over the place and we had people that showed up just because they were part of the friends of ocala facebook group they had nothing to do with hunting or fishing or they just wanted to come out and clean up ocala Mm -hmm. and they came out there and they were able to see a bunch of hunters clean up the forest and show that we truly cared and we aren't the problem uh, the overwhelming majority are not the problem. Sure. And then we got together again with the uh, Division of Forestry on their spring cleanup and did a lot out there with those people and met with some some dog hunters. Where were those guys? Oh man, they were from. Uh, they were from like up around Greed
2: Cove Springs.
1: Yeah, we went out there to that. One. Not last year, a year before I took my. Son. I dragged him out there. I said, like, "Come on, we're going out and we just." I was amazed. You see trash in the ditch. Coke cans, beer cans, but the amount of large trash out there yeah. is it's unbelievable.
2: It's insane the amount of crap that people bring out there in trash bags and then just leave it. Yep. All right, you already took the time to put it in the trash bag. Why don't you just take it to the transfer station?
1: That's what we do. I mean, we throw all of our stuff in the back of the truck, and then at the end of the day, I'd bag it up and, and throw it away. But people, I, I don't know. its It's not
0: hard to do. We picked up a kitchen remodel. Yeah. We cut up a fiberglass boat to where it wasn't recognizable as a boat anymore and took it to the dump. We picked up a jet ski. We picked up a tire big enough to fill up the entire bed of the, the bed of my Silverado sitting outside. Uh ungodly amount of tires that just odds and ends, trash, mattresses, couches. Oh, so many couches.
1: And they and people make an effort to go out there and dump it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean know. I I don't get it.
2: It's not like you just walk out there carrying a couch to dump it. like you. <laughs> we, no, no, you don't.
1: <laughs> we were driving to camp the other day, and I just happened to look in the woods. Somebody had taken a construction trailer, backed it way off in the woods, and dumped probably 30 yards of trash. I mean, they, Maytown Road is, I don't know, it's probably 15 miles from highway to highway. I mean, you had to drive out there to do that. It cost, that would cost you like $25 to go dump yeah. it. Dump.
0: <laughs> yeah.
2: I've done some, I've done some, uh, a little bit of dog hunting out there at Farmton. Yeah, that's so. where
1: our uh, lease is, is inside of Farmton. It's from the same people
2: uh, we lease
1: from out there on the set where uh, Maytown Spur is, um, the south end towards um, 5A, where they used to go ride yeah, forward yeah. and stuff out there. We're out near that area there. So There's, when
0: you think of dog hunting, what kind of mental image does that paint for you?
1: Well,. It's, so I told you, I like to write. So I, this is one of the things I wrote. It's not, it's not very long. It's a poem, but I'll tell you exactly. Um, this is what I think about when I think about dog hunt. So it's called Diesel roads to some, these roads are just rough and dusty, but to us, that's not what we see to them. It's just another path of transportation for you and I, it's second home and a destination. We spend hours upon hours riding, looking for sign in search of that buck we're hoping to find. Miles and miles, chase after chase, searching season after season for the ultimate race. When we drop the gates, them dogs know the deal. A bow, a chop, a high pitched squeal, busting the bushes or taking a track, all in pursuit of the biggest of racks. Chops and burns are likely to travel. Closer and closer, it's fixing and unravel. Click off the safety, look down the bead. Don't stare at his horns and don't forget to lead. When he hits the road, you squeeze the trigger. There ain't no rush in the world that could be any bigger. Your heart starts to pound you've ended the race. Buck on the ground and a smile on your face. If these roads could talk, they'd speak of the glory. The hunts they'd seen be one hell of a story.
2: Nice. That's good.
0: Yeah. I mean, that that paints a really, a a very vivid image. You know, every every time I I think about dog hunting, I... I can always hear the hounds that that first track you drop on at first light in the morning when it's still a little foggy it's good and cool outside and you just hear the dogs when you're on the far side of the the far side of the block and you hear the dogs coming and that's just the way that that sound just carries and echoes through the through the woods.
1: Oh yeah, I mean, I mean, it makes your hair stand up. Especially yeah. when you get a big old pack of puppies that, are, when they get it and they start to fire up, it is just, it's unreal.
0: You can hear the excitement in the dog's voice. Oh yeah, when they get on there, oh that, yeah, that just fire you right up. Absolutely. So, oh man, tell us some of your stories. Who 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 introduced you to the great outdoors?
1: So, like I said, my dad. Uh, he, he took us hunting. Um, he was big in a deer hunt he was even bigger in the, in the Fox hunting. Uh, we used to spend a lot of time in the Fox pens, which are now a thing of the past in Florida. They're outlawed. Um, we used to spend out there on uh 42 in Paisley, Mr. Reedy and mm-hmm. the Fox pen out there, which the wire is still there. I drive by it every now and then it's still there. Um, but he introduced us, um, a lot of the old dog men that are not around anymore uh Irv Janney was a big time fox hunter um, those guys and then some guys of new and then some of those have passed um but those th- those are who really introduced us you know into this sport of hunting in the outdoors um we spent a lot of time fishing but a lot a lot of time running dogs my dad I would say was the biggest contributor to that we used to have thirty hounds at the house. We used to get a pallet of dog food every two months. They dropped the pallet at the <laughs> house, but dog food back then was six bucks a bag. Yeah, right. <laughs> I told him the other day. He's like, "How much is that dog food?" I said, like, "It's thirty dollars a bag." He's like, "What?" <laughs> <laughs> I said, "Yeah, that's uh, that's it." But yeah, I had um, Irv Janin. Um, There was a guy that um, he's passed away now. That um, hunted out there where we hunt now gene burton hound dog he he was one of those old timers i mean he without fail he would show up to the fire in the morning nine o'clock in the morning he'd come rolling out with his shorts and his rubber boots but he kind of took my son under his wing a little bit at first and um i we come around the corner one day me and my wife and it's cold and jeans, giving my son. My son was probably 10 at the time, blackberry brandy and trying to give him a dip of Copenhagen. <laughs> but I looked and I was like, you know, that was, that was me growing up. And that, that's how it all started right there.
2: Yeah.
1: <laughs> it, Just, he did, Yeah. He didn't care. He jeans like, yeah, it ain't going to hurt yeah, yeah, yeah. him. <laughs> we
0: all, if you spent any time around a decently sized hunting camp or you know, a bunch of hunters in general, we, there there's always that one old guy that'll try and sneak that one past you and your kids, You're yeah. like, uh, 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 come back over here. Don't, don't. Yep. Mm-hmm. I know what he's about to do. Yeah. You come on back over here for a minute. Yeah. Oh yeah. yeah he like, he <laughs> all about it.
1: But he, I mean, he, he loved it. You know, a lot of them guys out there, they love doing it for the kids. I mean, all the ones that we have out there now, they, they love it. They love it for the kids.
0: So what's one of your fondest memories of uh, the great outdoors hunting, fishing
1: well, like I said, my son killing his first, that was that was great. Um, my first deer um, in front of dogs, I think I was 14, 15. I thought it was the biggest. It ended up being like a one-inch spike. That was back before when you could kill someone. <laughs> yeah. But, I i mean, to me that was. Um, but I really get a kick out of people that have never dog hunted. We have some guys that hunt down there with us. They don't own dogs. They've never dog But They do it now with us. But they've killed dog or deer in front of the dogs, and just to see the excitement—I mean, they love it. And that's those are the memories that I like are there. I I like to see other other. I I just love people, you know, getting to shoot something in front of the dogs. To me, I could the biggest buck I got on my wall. I mean, I could tell you the five minutes when he came up and I shot him or whatever. But I could tell you every time we turn them dogs loose i could tell you where they ran what they ran and um that that's what does boot you know for me right there you know i think ahead.
2: the uh part of the chase is like in in a few times that i've dog hunted like without the chase the hunt wouldn't even be fun like trying to get ahead of the dogs cut the dogs off get to the road before the dogs get there like that's that's all the fun in it and if you're hauling 50 miles an hour down a two track with Trail that's half as wide as a truck. Oh yeah, (laughs) trying to get ahead of dogs.
1: Yeah, those like I said, those new GPS are nice, but you still got to hunt off instinct, and hope your guess is right because you know you look the wrong way for a split second that deer's cross the road, it's done. Yeah, Yeah. your
0: dogs might have a GPS on them, but that deer still doesn't. No, absolutely. And it's gonna do whatever it needs to do to get away from them. That
1: yeah, they 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 know what to do.
0: And if i've said it once i'll say it a million times and i've told plenty of people who who i hunted with uh, when i hunted down in southeast Georgia when we lived there uh you know they just couldn't understand We're like well, why are these guys running deer with dogs so look, look look man dog hunting combine combines a redneck's two favorite sports deer hunting and nascar yep yeah All right? <laughs> it don't get much better than that and, and it's just the the camaraderie and the excitement the constant excitement that comes from that and sitting there i used to get a real kick out of sitting in the tree stand uh we hunted around those dog hunting guys listening to them pick on each other all morning on the radio
1: oh yeah yeah and your your dog ain't doing nothing you can't shoot yeah you know, i need to come over there and give you some glasses
0: yeah you'd hear you hear somebody shoot and then i uh, no, uh-uh, that was so and so he already missed again he didn't hit it and he's like ah, i got that there 10 minutes later I didn't hit it. The dog was still running. I was like, it, just, it, it just laid into that guy for the next 10, 15 minutes on the radio about missing that deer again.
1: Oh yeah, we um, quick story, and this is another thing. I so me and my father in law. So like I said, sometimes we walk the dogs in the woods, and sometimes we'll just cast them on tracks or whatever. But um, this was this is open a weekend, I think it was, and it was on a Sunday and. We took the dogs right out of camp. Well, we had a whole litter of puppies who'd never run. So he walks them in the woods. I'm out on the road, and uh, we left the uh, one female back at the camp because she was in heat, so we kept her locked up. Well, she's back at the camp barking. Well, of course, all the puppies go to her. So I'm like, I'll go get the puppies. I'll get them and bring them back, walk them into you, and then I'll you know, get back out on the road. But so, I don't know, for some reason I was like, I'll just hang out here. So we're walking around this pond, and I see my one red dog. He starts getting his tail up, and he starts whimpering, and he's jumping up in the air. And I said, something's fixing to happen. Well, I turn and look the other way, and all of a sudden, my father-in-law's like, dear, dear, it's a bug. It's got horns. it got some horns. And this big old eight point literally jumped out from probably 50 yards from us. Well, he jumped the wrong way, and he jumped into the pond. And when he hit that pond, you could see in his eye, he's like, oh, man, I just messed up. And we ended up, we popped off eight shots, and we just unloaded, and uh, w- one pellet got him, was the one that got him. I mean, whose it was, we don't know, but that right there, we were so happy. I mean, it was just because we hardly ever get a chance to to kill him a lot of times because we're behind the dogs, and uh, that was a great memory right there.
0: So when I say tell me a funny story, what's the first one that comes to mind from, from your hunting career?
1: So probably the one of the funniest, when I was little, my dad's buddy, we'll just call him by a CB handle, Greenhorn. I won't say his name. His dogs were not so good. <laughs> and um, But he loved them. You know, he brought them out there every weekend. He'd dump them, and every weekend he'd cuss them. That thing ain't worth it. So, uh they got to running one day and they were just going off. And he's like, Hey, hang a big old buck. A big old buck's going to come out and get ready, get ready there. And about that time, a hen turkey comes <laughs> running across the road. And I'm like, Sure enough, here comes in black and tan. <laughs> she wouldn't fly. They chased that. She probably ran for about half an hour. He that, thing around. that was probably, that guy was just ready to crawl in a hole. Oh, I bet. Yeah.
0: That's a, that's a heck of a big buck story right there. Yeah. No, yeah. That's, that's the funniest thing about that. You get those guys that have them dogs that aren't so good. And there's always that one in the group and them dogs will just run whatever they can get to run.
1: Oh yeah. I have one. Like I said, I have one. That he likes to run a coon if it's hot. And I've done that before. Like, oh man, they got they got him, and then they're bait. I'm like, yeah. I look up at the tree, and a little striped tail hanging out of there. But we <laughs> gonna you just chalk it up.
0: I've heard them uh, cussing people up and down on that on that lease about their dogs, and uh, he's well, it, it's so and so's turn to, to turn out dogs. Ah, oh, he's just gonna run another pig, blah blah blah, <laughs> running pigs <laughs> and running coyotes and whatever else they can get their nose to. Oh yeah. But so you haven't finished your book yet, correct?
1: Yeah, we're I'm uh, getting everything, you know, down and then and we're gonna put it together and then um like I said, I've never done it before, so it's it's a it's a learning process. So um hopefully sooner than later we'll get it done. And uh I'm excited about it. I mean, like I said, I want to put a lot of stories from the front them old guys in there too, because I think a lot of stories are fine details make up the whole thing and you know it's not it's not to kill it's everything that's in between right
2: those old timers that tell those stories those are the ones where you could just literally sit there Star eyed for hours and hours and hours and just l- gosh all their stories are so much better than any of ours i feel like
3: <laughs> oh
1: yeah i got a buddy of mine john Ferrer, and i'll say his name. that boy likes to talk and I could listen to him tell you a story about doing laundry and I would get excited and want to go home and do laundry. I mean, not that he (laughs) does laundry, but the detail he put into that story and you know, 90% of it's probably not true, but I mean, you're just like, wow, man, I want to (laughs) (laughs)
3: go.
0: I'm going to go wash the Amin clothes when I get to the house.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I do know sometimes when like you get those hunting stories going and one, you get, you always got that one guy that you know is going to, like you know, fib it up a little bit, and he's telling the story, and you're sitting there like, hey, wait a minute, I was there when that happened. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't remember that part <laughs>
1: oh, a thirty eight point spike, yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> he was he was as wide as a igloo seventy five you're like that we that wasn't even a legal deer, yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
2: <laughs> we used to have a guy at one of our older it was I think it was, well, he was at the first lease. the Blakely leaves we were on, too, but his name was Puddin. And Puddin didn't even hunt with us. Puddin just lived down the street from the camp, and he would come and drink my dad's beer <laughs> and just bullshit. But uh, I remember him telling us one time a story about how he was having to to belly crawl after this 14 point because the 14 point was belly crawling away from him. Through the bushes, he says, that thing never would get up, man. It was just belly crawling. <laughs> <laughs>
0: he was, that man was a trip. I remember yeah. it, it, we're sitting in, we had a box blind that was probably 700 yards from camp across several agriculture fields, and you could just see camp off there. You were hunting over a food plot. It was just back in the woods, and you see Puddin's white white pickup truck pulling to camp. My dad pulls out his binoculars. He goes, what's Puddin doing up at camp? He's looking through the binoculars. He goes, He's drinking my beer. Puddin gets out of the truck, looks around, sees nobody's hair, walks over the cooler, grabs himself a beer, has a beer, looks around, grabs another one, gets back in his truck, drives on down to his house. <laughs> but he was uh he was a he was a hunting camp staple. He just yeah. you know, a neighbor that lived up there. And we'd show up, we'd light the fire in the fire ring, and here come Puddin's truck from down the street. He'd see the fire, here he comes. Rolling down the road
1: we had a guy like uh, up there in georgia where we hunt he, he he's moved away now but he was like now nah, he didn't come steal our beer but he had some stories and buddy the first time i ever met him it was probably 200 degrees outside and he would watch our gates he would drive up and if something was wrong he'd call my dad hey you know so-and-so's gates open blah blah, blah or somebody's been in there but he come stopping me one day and i he talked my ear off it was so hot out there and he just would not stop. <laughs> He just liked to talk, and a lot of times when he'd come over to camp, a lot of the guys, he'd see him ease off. They're like, eh, going to get out of here because he's going to stop.
0: <laughs> now, I wasn't quite called pudding a beer, Steve, because he did pay for his beer and propane. He drove the propane truck, so every time he'd come by and we needed propane, he'd just top off the propane tank while he was there in his propane yeah. truck, <laughs> the truck from, from the city or whatever. But uh, he was, man, he was quite a storyteller. He had a story for every tooth he didn't have. I yeah. <laughs> he had a lot of stories. <laughs> yeah. So every week we like to wrap up the podcast with the Under Pressure Outdoors Tip of the Week. And you got a tip for us?
1: Uh, like I said, do what you can personally do yourself to make the sport better, um, to make the outdoors better. I mean, that's the only thing you control is is you, and just set a good example and uh, hopefully pass it on to others.
0: I'm going to kind of caveat off that and go back to the whole uh, we talked about earlier with the social media thing. And when you post those pictures, by all means, you should be proud of the animal you've harvested and put the work into, and you should want to post that to social media. But you also need to think about the pictures and the videos and things you're posting and look at it, try to look at it through the lens of a non-hunter, not necessarily an anti-hunter, because no matter what you do, you're never going to please an anti-hunter. But like you were talking about earlier, it's not the people we need to reach all the way to the anti-side and pull to the hunting side. We need to look at the people who sit between the anti-hunter and the hunter. Um, and, and just make sure we pull them to our side, not necessarily to hunt, but to where they understand why we hunt. And, and they can see that, make sure that when you post those pictures, you show respect for the animal and um, gratitude for what you, you know, being able to harvest the animal, so on and so forth. It takes just a little bit of time to clean up the blood, tuck the tongue back in the mouth, you know, and it makes for a better picture in my opinion. Yeah. I, I, we strive to make the animal look as alive as possible, mm-hmm. right? As it did. Uh, I want it to look like it did when I first saw it, and I went, wow. That's, that's what I want to harvest. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I think I'm going to say scout.
2: I just don't, you know, you can always take the time to maybe, if you don't even necessarily have to go out with the intention to scout, but the more time you spend in the woods the more knowledge
0: you have about the woods that you're hunting. Absolutely. I could not agree more.
1: Hands on, feet yeah. on the ground.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
2: It's always good to just get out, too. I mean, <laughs> keep yourself from being cooped up. Get out there,
0: walk around, ride around, I don't, listen to some music. So do you have a goal date in mind for when the book would be published or when you're trying to try and publish it? Well, I want
1: to get it, get it try to get it finished up um, this year and then go about getting it published. I've seen you know some people do it just on Amazon or you know a hard copy. I am still I like to have the actual book in my hand. I'm not you know I'll I'll read stuff online but I still like to have so we'll probably do it 50/50. You know,
0: I'm a tree stand reader so I got to have a good paperback book. Yeah. Keeps me from uh fidgeting too much. And, and making a bunch of racket. So as long as it's not too cold, I'll sit there and read a book in the tree stand.
1: Yeah, it's good. I mean, that's definitely a good thing to do. And like I said, this would be the first one. So it's it's definitely a learning experience. There's a lot that goes into it. You want to make sure, you know, that it's right, but everything else is right with it. And, you know, the right way to go about it. You know, it's, I have no, you know, it's it's a learning curve.
0: Absolutely yeah. understandable. Well, make sure you get with us and let us know when you publish it, so we can uh, reach back out to our listener base and let them know if they're interested in buying your book and reading your book. That we can get that out to them, and we can get a link put up on our page. And uh, I wish we had a link now. Or do you have a link now of any kind we could put in our podcast description to direct them to where you have a website or anything for your book? Or
1: no, oh, I will once we get it finished, um, because. We haven't set like a, hard, you know, I haven't set a hard date or anything like that. So mm-hmm. I don't want to, you know, I feel like sometimes you get people interested in it and you're like, oh, right. they're ready. And then all of a sudden it's like, ah, it's like a bad firework. Yeah. Then, you know, so I want to make sure it's right and it's close and then we'll start. You
0: know. Well, let us know when you get it published and we'll definitely push it out there for you and I'll buy a copy of it. Yeah, you know, I'll give me a copy too. We'll read it up and talk about it again. Maybe we'll have you back on after we've, we've read it and we'll talk about it again. Talk yeah. specifically about the book.
1: Maybe I'll bring my uh, my family up here and and let them you know talk about some of this stuff too. They, yeah, that,
0: that would be great. We got plenty of microphones around here, as you can see. So oh
1: yeah. You know, yeah. Like I said, my daughter loves to talk, so she'd have a ball. Yeah, <laughs> sounds
0: good. Thank you for joining us. We really appreciate it.
1: I thank y'all for having me. All right, hey, man.
0: You, you guys have a good night. Too.